You're listening to Galaxy Radio. This is the Black Book Show with your host, McConnell Sankofa, myself. I am the author of the book, The Rise of Rastafari, Resistance, Redemption and Repatriation, and also author of the book, Life in Gambia at the Smiling Coast of Africa. And this show, the Black Book Show, is every other Saturday between 8 and 10 p.m. That's uh, British uh, summertime. And it's all about authors sharing their thoughts and sharing their stories, their journeys, why they've written the books and giving more insight into authors of African heritage from around the world. I've had authors come on and speak about their books. You know, some have been in uh, on the continent of Africa, such as myself, I'm in the Gambia, other parts of Africa, in the Caribbean, uh, in USA, uh, in UK. Um, so it's a, broad, it's a platform that really does expose authors of African heritage around the world. And this particular show, we have a very, very special show because I'm going to be talking about my book, The Rise of Rastafari, and also my second book, Life in Gambia, my experience of time living in Gambia. Also about my other platform, the Black Books webinar, which is a monthly platform that I host online where various authors come on and, and talk about their books and they're given a certain allocated time slot. Um, so I wanted to cover that as well in the show. I'm actually going to play the audio uh, from an interview that I had with the founder of the UK Black Writers Forum um, and he interviewed me about my books and also about my uh, my uh, webinar platform as well and also the radio show that I do on Galaxy Afui Station, the only debrainwashing station. So we're actually going to go straight into that uh, that interview that I had now with the, the founder from UK Black Writers Forum. Well, let's talk. Um, what's it? So, first, let me get a bit of background about yourself. So, like, where, what's origins? Where are you from originally? Okay, so um, background in terms, I, I was born in England, but my parents, in terms of my mum's family, uh, my mum was born in England. She is of uh, Jamaican heritage, though. Her parents are Jamaican, uh, and they came during, you know, that, that whole era, Windrush era, where there was a lot of migration from people from the Caribbean um, to the UK. And my dad is from Malawi, which is in Southeast Africa. And um, I believe he came to the country, the UK, in his in his 20s as, as a young man. And that's where he met my mother. I'm currently um, in the Gambia at the moment. That's where I've relocated. So I'm, I'm joining you. They call it the Smiling Coast of Africa. And, that, and that's the, the title of my book, actually. The subtitle is called Life in Gambia, the Smiling Coast of Africa. So obviously we'll get more into that as I'm sure as the discussion goes on. So just growing up in England, so obviously you got in England for a period of time and you're half Caribbean and half African. Just out of interest. How was that for you growing up in, in London with, with like both Caribbean and African heritage? Because I know back in the day there was a still thing of African versus Caribbeans and that. Uh, did you did that affect you at all? Or well, you know what? I, I from, particularly from when I was younger, I was more even though like you know my dad is Africa, I was more had the perspective of like as as someone from of Caribbean heritage. Obviously now as I'm older, I'm as Pan-Africanist, etc. I would just refer myself as someone as an African person, person of African heritage. But you know, particularly when I was growing up as a as younger, as a child, because you know what I I didn't really have a relationship with my father because I was growing up in a single mom household. So I didn't know my dad's family. I, I had no recognition really of my dad. I mean when I was little, I probably he was he was maybe around for uh, probably a little while, but him and my mum were never in like a proper relationship like that. And then I didn't see him again until I was fourteen, whatever. So my whole like growing up was more seeing myself as like you know uh, obviously a person uh, in in UK, um, but of for, 
but from all the Caribbean kind of background. Um, so I, I, from Jamaican heritage, that's kind of how I had it. When, when I came in, you know, when I was like 19 and 20, and then I started to obviously find out more about my history, etc. I realised that people that are from Jamaica are really African and that kind of stuff. And then also getting more into black consciousness. And then also, um, then obviously, my, my realizing as well, my father, even though I wasn't um, necessarily, he wasn't in my life much. I mean, I, I see, I, well, I don't see him as much now if I'm in the Gambia, but when I was in the UK, I mean, it would be literally a time to time thing. I don't really see him regularly, but even though that, that, that I still have been, I would think a lot of my, like my thinking and, and, and consciousness has still come through because I'm still obviously have that in my DNA from him because even sometimes if he's around and we have a conversation and I, he's very uh, no, well known about world affairs and things that are happening on the African continent and I remember when I was young, younger he, whenever he came he always put on like, African channels like Ben TV and other kind of African channels and now I'm realising now even though he may not have been around me in terms of like it's a lot of time that I spent with him but I think some of that is has come through in terms of certainly in terms of my you know my African cent Afrocentric outlook on things. So, um, obviously, yeah, so you, so obviously you're in Gambian, you're, obviously you're in Gambian, you're, you're in Gambian, so how often? Actually, just so what made you relocate to Gambia? It's just how long have you been in Gambia for? Well, this is my fourth time I've been to Gambia. This particular time I've been here since January. Um, I have previously in 2019, I was living here for six months. Hence my, um, my second book, which is called Life in Gambia, The Smiling Coast of Africa. Yeah. And um this talks about the you know the six months i spent living in gambia and and it, it covers a lot about my journey um during the six months that i was in gambia um i i um well i'm still in gambia now but obviously i've come back um and i'm living here for the foreseeable future but when i was in 2019 i was also living in gambia um and maybe volume two of life in gambia who knows but when i was living the the book i'm going to just talk about now in 2019 um that i wrote that um talks about my experience over 2019 it was it came out last year but it talks about you know what um me when i went to naming ceremonies i went to weddings when i was in gambia um, i mingled a lot i went to the local villages so i got i got a taste of what it was like you know a real day-to-day -day life because when you're on holiday and you only spend like a week on holiday or two weeks you don't always get like a full experience of you know the country and the culture so even learning about the different tribes that are here they have wolof they have mandinka they have jolof which all have different culture traditions and yeah, and, 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 and I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, um, doing it and, and sitting out. Sometimes it would just be even with friends, with the local people and just drinking green tea because that's something that they do. Everyone in Gambia, they would drink green tea or drink it, they call it a tire and just, you know, just talking and uh, yeah, and finding out more about, you know, what's life like for the everyday, the average Gambian. And yeah, man, and also other things that I did during the time that I was here, I worked on a YouTube channel called Blacksit with a lady called Judith Ryan. And, you know, that was a very successful channel. And we highlighted uh, basically people's journey because there's other people that have, have from the diaspora that have uh, come back to Gambia. And some of them have set up hotels, restaurants, uh, shops and different businesses. So we highlighted their journey from their perspective um, of, you know, what's it, what, what's it like? 
and also we um, show people because Africa still has like a negative connotation and a, and a stigma about it. So we show people that yes, there's supermarkets here. No, people are not living in mud huts. There's supermarkets. You know, there's medical um, set of facilities here. There's all the things that you would expect a lot in the West that are here in Africa. And also we tried to promote businesses as well that was in the game, like local businesses that we went to, and um, we documented them as well. Um, and that the YouTube channel, I said at the time, I think it was. A very, it was one of probably the most popular channel in in, uh, in ten thousand viewers per probably per videos we did and, and yeah I had a great time um, on that and um, I got to meet some really interesting people I mean some of the one of the places that we went to was the naming ceremony of Adam Barrows the the president the naming ceremony of his I think his brother um, we got to meet uh, another another minister. Hadifa Salah is one of the, the ministers here, um, and um, he, he was interviewed. SFR um, is part of, I think, doing the truth, re the truth Reconciliation that committee that they've got going on. He's the, the lead person. Uh, we met him and other influential people in the Gambia. I mean, I met one of the football players for the football team. Um, also, they, the, 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 the phone company, Afrocell, um, one of the, direct, the directors there, managing director. Um, QTV, I get me the, the people, the managing director of QTV. So, I mean, to put it in like the perspective of UK, that would be like, you know, meeting the main head of ITV, for example, meeting the main head of Vodafone, like meeting like your, your you know, you know, your John Terry, England footballer, putting it onto that kind of level. Um, so, yeah, and that's just to name a few. There was loads more influential people that I met while I was over here. Sorry, you're on mute. If you just want to um, unmute yourself. Uh, yeah, people are asking for the name of the channel. Is it Black Set? So, so people are asking for the name of the YouTube yeah, channel. Put, I'm going to put it in the channel. I'm going to put it in now. I just want to say as well, yeah, I was working. I'm not actually, I want to put it in, in the uh, group chat now. I'm not still working on it. Okay, Black Set, I'm not still with, I was doing the, the project for about four months, yeah. Um, me, I still have a good relationship with the lady who's, who um, who founded the channel, but I've, I've now progressed and I'm doing, hence we're going to talk about later, my, obviously my my Black Box show um, webinar platforms. Just when you were compiling the Life in Gambia book, like how was that put, like when you... So was it always your intention to, you know, just... So, was it, so when you went to Gambia, was it always your intention, you know, inspired this book, or was it because of your experience by what you saw, you thought, you know what, I have to jam this down. And also, how was that process? Was it an easy process to to quit the book? Like, did you, like, was it easy to just to... Was the process smooth, as in the writing process? Um, even the... Was even the... Was even the... So, so even the decision to go... Independently publishing was that was that a smooth process? It wasn't necessarily my intention to write the book um, when I was in when I was in Gambia. I always had my first book, The Rise of Rastafari, which I'll probably talk about more later. But I didn't necessarily have attention like for the six months because at the time I didn't even know I was going to be coming back to the UK or if or what because I was just like I've got at least six months here. I want to see how it goes. Yeah, I did come back at the end, and obviously I'm back now. Um, but well, I came back to UK and then went back, which is why I'm in Gambia now. But uh, it's when I got back to England and um, because of the experience and because I, I experienced so much and because sometimes as well, people African heritage, we need to highlight our own stories. There's a lot of times, you know, 
um, and, and hear from our kind of perspective on things as well. And there's a lot in the book, even I haven't mentioned, like, for example, I even talk about people, because it's really aimed at people from the diaspora that um, that possibly either think, maybe are thinking of going to Gambia, but will need more information, or maybe just, you know, they're interested in travel, or maybe they haven't come across it, but it just, it just opens their eyes a bit. So some of the things that people always want to know, like, what opportunities are there? So in the book, I talk about what kind of opportunities there are, like business opportunities. So it's a bit of like a, it's a bit of a memoir in my experience, but it's also like a part guide as well. And also it drops in like, for example, um, you know what, there's talks about business opportunities um, that, that I've come across. It talks about the safety of a country. You know, a lot of these kind of general things that people would want to know um, about countries is all kind of included in this book. So when I got back to England, um, I didn't keep a journal or anything like that, but because um, my, it was like my head was my journal and a lot of um, the experiences for me, because when I, when I was in the Gambia, I think it exceeded my expectations each time I went there and, and the things that I experienced there were so memorable. And um, I said some of the stuff we had, which was already like, well, the YouTube channel was already stuff that I had that video evidence of, but um, I, I, it just all flooded. And that's the thing, the beautiful thing about putting it in a book now is that in te even not even so much self, but in 10 years, 20, 30 years time, if I have children or grandchildren, etc., and this is something, or even just for myself, this is always something now, this is part of obviously my life as well, always something I can look about, and those memories will come flooding back when I read the book. So it, even in 30 years time, you know, when I'm a bit older man, I might have forgotten certain things or whatever, but then I can just read some of these pages. So even just for me on a personal level, um, it and to document my life for me is very, very important and, and, and special, and it brings back those memories, but also that I can share it with other people and hopefully inspire other people to come and I mean this, the reason really I decided to, to, to write the book was to, yeah, to educate people about the Gambia so they would get more knowledge and it's all about again raising that awareness of what people think about Africa and getting people to know that you know Africa is is a, it, well, I don't want to say Africa, because Africa is the whole, it's 55 countries, but particularly the Gambia, getting, raising people's awareness and knowledge um, of the Gambia. Uh, the second part of your uh, question um, was about publishing. I, I published independently, right? Self-publishing, I mean, my first book, The Rise of Rastafari, right? it was almost like a bit self-published and a bit I used the publisher because um, I took some service out, like I had a bit of help with like the front cover, but other parts like the general writing, um, I didn't get a proofreader, I think, because I've got a journalist background. But the second book, I it was like fully self-published myself. So even down to the cover, the pictures um, are like literally two locations that I, I took, two other pictures I bought online, the other t uh, two, that I literally took with my own camera, but I designed it myself. So the colours, these are the colours of the Gambian flag. So that's why I decided to put this colour, these colours. It's called Life in Gambia, the Smiling Coast of Africa. And the reason I chose it is because obviously it's about my life, my life in Gambia. And Gambia is known as the Smiling Coast of Africa because of the friendliness and the kindliness of the people. And that's and the temperament of the people. And that's something that I, I write in the book is, is how friendly and kind the people are. And to put that in perspective, as I remember a time when um, I, it was in rainy season and I was, it was, it was waterlogged, you know, like if, if anyone's been to the Caribbean, you know, when it rains heavy in the Caribbean, it, it rains hard, but then, the, you know, the heat dries up, dries everything up quickly because they have dirt roads here. So it was raining really heavily, but, uh, the taxi driver got out and he, we needed to cross the road to get to my flat. And I'm a big guy. Yeah. I'm people see me in person. I'm six, four and I'm quite broad as well. Yeah. And he, this guy's about half my size, offered to carry me on his back and take me through 
<laughs> through the through the water uh, through through to get to my apartment. I didn't let him do that because I knew he would have fallen in the water. <laughs> I was worried he'd fall in the water. But just this is just the kind of kindliness that you experience in 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 the Gambia. You can go anywhere and people will ask you. You know what? Um, to, to have food, they all have food that communally around a bowl, and you can go outside and they all eat together. And these are some of the things where in England you can live next to someone for ten for fifteen years and you don't even know who your neighbour is. Um, so just just going around, just walking around, people say hello, and it's really got like a community spirit, which I like. Co community cohesion, and also it's very family orientated as well. So for example, I noticed fam. Another guy also mentioned in the book strong family structures. So. But the relationship between, you know, whether it's a, a, a man and a woman and in terms of intimate relationship between a husband and wife or a boyfriend and girlfriend and also between a father and a, a daughter and brother and sister. I noticed that the, the male to female relationship was uh, was very strong, whereas obviously in the Western world, um, the, the relationship between sort of black females and, and males is more divided because of certain th things that obviously have been put, put in place that have, that have kept us divided in this way. Uh, but in, in, in the Gambia, it's a lot more tight on the family structure and how the, the community is in general. But going back now into your question, um, independent publishing, um, based on my, my first book, I did a lot of publishing it in pretty much independently. And I think up to one point of my first book, I was going to independently publish it. It's only because when I started originally my first book, I went, Amazon was with CreateSpace and then they changed from CreateSpace to KDP. And in that process, I lost my cover. So I, then I then get, decided to get a publisher to help with the cover. And then, and then we kind of just went from there. But because I'd done a lot already in terms of writing myself and, and, and also I had like the format um, of the book writing from the previous book, I decided to just, you know, do self-publish it myself on, on a low budget. It doesn't really, didn't really cost me. Obviously it didn't save me a lot of money from spending a publisher because sometimes people spend, you know, what, 2,000, 3,000 pounds in publisher. They don't even recoup that money back from sales. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah. So I was just like, let me say low budget or to maximize profit as well. Um, and also I wanted to really to, 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 to self publish myself. So I can show other people how to self publish because now I do courses on how to self publish um, as well. So if you, and I can talk more about that journey from my, from, um, from my perspective, people need to be coached. I do coaching on, on how to publish books. So it, it adds to my skills of, 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 of having that as well. So that's, that's really part of the reason why I, the reason why I went and decided to, um, published independently and because I'm a very perfectionist I'm very I demand things from high high standards so I didn't want to then say pay for a service uh, from a publisher uh, I've had people some heard I get people that paid services to from publishers and not quite got the service that they that they thought they were just going to get and not been happy with the service so I was like I want to do it all myself um, and I was kind of proud to put a book together myself where it's about me, my story, and also I've published it fully myself as well. And I can, I can also share my publishing skills with other people. Yeah, but, uh, but I mentioned, yeah, um, so say she is in the, in the chat, she's asked, have you set up any business out there yet? In Gambia, yeah. So I have, I have business here, but it's, it's what I do online. So effectively um you know like my webinars radio uh the coaching um the selling of my books um the courses that i do the video editing i do for authors that's all really my book business and where whereas i don't have a physical uh business on the ground and i don't really have an intention to do that right um necessarily because uh the thing with gambia and i'll be honest is that and i mentioned this in my book is that there are some areas where 
businesses like it's a country that relies heavily on tourism so so even before you know the whole covid situation and thomas cook unfortunately when i was here in 2019 thomas cook went bust so the last three years it's a country that relies on tourism but the tourism has gone down since really the last three years starting with the the, the demise of thomas cook then going into covid um uh, right up to now it's still a country that's recovering from that um that the, the last three years of what what's happened so um but prior to that and, and still now a lot of people do you know six months some people do from the, the west six months here six months off so because the tourism here is like it's in a season of six months so people will do the business for six months um which would be you know october up to the end of the april and then during may to the end of september they'll go back to europe or america etc so that's if you're building a business based on tourism yeah and tourism is about as they say about a third of the economy it might even be higher here it's a country that relies heavily on tourism um so some people do airbnbs as well or restaurants and those those kind of businesses that cater to uh to cater to the tourists but in terms of the country so it, it's a small country gambia um the, the population is about is, is about two million people rough rough a rough estimate um but it's also a country where the economy doesn't it doesn't have a strong economy eh? i said tourism is one also a lot of the the, the money of here relies on remittance i think in 2001 someone told some someone i know told me is a gambian that remittance accounted for 71 percent of like the the money coming the, the money coming into the in, in the gambia the i think it's the grip the gdp of the country was remittance now whether that figure or not is true because i haven't validated it myself but i do know i can't say 100 percent that figure is correct but i do know a lot of people rely here on remittance as in money coming from um the diaspora because most people here have got a relative from abroad like most people have got a brother uncle a relative who's of in europe or usa etc or a relationship maybe with someone in the diaspora and that and that also is does bring uh, is what brings in a, a lot of their money so it's an interesting country because it's a country that very much that relies a lot on money from outside incoming into the country um, as I said, but making money in into the Gambia can be quite difficult. Like anywhere, there's always opportunities, etc. So there's people, but um, unless you've got big money to invest, because you're talking about a small country and in a country where it doesn't have a lot of disposable income, the average wage that a lot of people get in the Gambia is only about four, about forty pound a month. Yeah. Now that that's not maybe nothing to someone like me and you, but as I said, to, I mean it's still not a lot to the everyday Gambia. Don't get me wrong, but for example. Obviously, oh, the way we would spend forty pound is different than how they would look lo- lo- locally, etc. But the, what, what I'm trying to gather is that when you've got a country where you, it's a small country for one, and then also a country where people don't have a lot of disposable income. Now there are people I want to say the other end who are rich in Gambia, and there are people who have got money. I'm not trying to make it look like everyone is poor, etc. And um, there are people here who've got money. It doesn't necessarily mean they're big, uh, big spenders or they're going to spend on you. But a lot of those people that have got the money is because money that's come from abroad and they brought that back into the country because maybe they've worked abroad and then etc. Or they've inherited wealth. Yeah. So the kind the when the business opportunities I see or hair business hair I saw it um it's a, a limited but i saw the entry level is very easy to start a business because opposed to other countries it's probably it's a low entry level however um obviously making money back then you might think oh it's a low amount of money you need to put in on etc and it might take longer to make money back and then also the pro- the pricing of your product depends but that these are some of the reasons why i haven't I haven't looked because i've looked at businesses here but i haven't thought they're necessarily um viable but obviously i maintain myself by doing um as i said my my, my book business everything that i do that generates money is done online um yeah let me just go back a little bit yeah because yeah, 
because I need to talk about the first book, The Rise of Master Barra. Just what, I'm just going to ask quickly, so what inspired your debut book? What, because from, because I got A Rise of here, the first thing I think, like I know to my knowledge, I know that you, you wrote here, yeah, just to talk about it, also to dispel some of the misconceptions people have about it, because like growing up here, whenever you hear Rastafari, the first thing first thing you think of AI is dreadlocks, and that, and also like people thought, I don't know, just that. Also, there was a sense of like the whole mean of Rastafari being kind of hijacked by the wider media. Wider media, in the sense that it became popular when it became like the look, the whole look or culture, or the whole dress sense of what apparently Rastafari is, kind of became trendy at one point and you see you see everyone rocking it but they're not really about it and rather you answer that yeah yeah so the rise of rastafari is my first initial book now i've literally it was released in may 2019 and i've done uh, just a revised edition which i've just uh, finished being published yeah um the rise of rastafari resistance redemption and repatriation both of those books the rise of rastafari and life in, in gambia the somali coast africa available on amazon in paperback and kindle now the reason why i wrote the rise of rastafari is i'm a rastafarian and I, I've, I've been a rastafari for about 10 years now and and i wanted to write it so it this can spell some of the misconceptions like the, like when people think about Rasta, the first things that a lot of times come to their mind is like, you know, other locks, ganja, vegetarianism, or reggae music. Um, as I said, you can see, I don't have locks in my hair. I used to have locks, I don't have locks now. This is actually a picture of Emperor Haile Selassie. This is the front cover, but you see, he doesn't have locks. So he looks a lot closer to me than he does than a man with locks. He's also almost a spitting image of me. Like, I remember when um, uh, a girl that, a girlfriend that I had at the time, and I showed her this book, and, I, and she said, who's, I said, you know this person? And she said, that's, that's you, but when you're older, because <laughs> of the resemblance of how close the, the picture looks to me. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of things that people don't know about Russell, ignorant about. Um, and obviously I wanted to people have the education and the information. And even a lot of people that call themselves Rastas don't necessarily understand Rasta or they don't understand that the, the, the origins and the actual root of it. Um, and so for example, like the, the, the locks, for example, like the, the, a lot of people don't know that the people, because most people associate Rastas just people that have, as people that have locks. Like in Gambia, they just see it as a hairstyle. They call it, it's almost like hairstyle on a Rasta. But the people that actually started the Rasta movement didn't have locks. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people have, yeah, um, is the locks. Now, we can also look about ganja. Like there's a lot of Rastas, including myself, there's a lot of Rastas that don't smoke ganja, yeah. There's some Rastas who don't like reggae music, yeah. Um, these are things, vegetarianism, there's, there's Rastas who don't eat. Um, eat, eat meat, yeah. I mean, since Russians who eat meat, some who do, yeah. Some who don't, some do. Now, the the main things though that are that are quarter Rastafari are often overlooked, and it's just looked on seen of in this kind of culture, yeah. And then late now, talk like for example, you mentioned now, then it's been later a culture that's been commercialized, and then people that even are not necessarily Rasta, but they just want to look a certain way, yeah, or they want to associate certain things. And the problem is then people from the outside are then defining what it is on the inside. Um, and the, 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 what I feel is a real shame because me as someone from, of, of, of Caribbean, particularly Caribbean heritage, and, when I, and it is something that is birthed out of the experience of black people from the diaspora, particularly those of us of Caribbean, specifically Jamaican heritage, yeah. And when we 
don't know. It's the one movement that's really been brought about because of the experience and, and what we've gone through in terms of like linking Pan-Africanism and spirituality. And why is it we don't know anything about it? Or we're so ignorant about it, but we, we know about loads of other things which are not birthed out of our own experience. And it's when it, it's even when I look at, say, Rastafari, it, it's even the contributions that Rasta have, 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 has made, which I think a lot of people don't recognise that a lot of people wouldn't be here in Africa if it wasn't for Rastafari, because Rastafari have always been the people that have stood up for you know um, African liberation and the redemption of Africa, whether that is in, in spirit, whether that is in, in mind. You're talking about you know when the movement emerged, 1930s Jamaica, 400 years of slavery that, that the, the people had, had, had gone through, or their ancestors had gone through. So there's very much a colonial mind and mentality. So getting people to, to look towards Africa, Africa has been denigrated for, four, for 400 years. Africa has been still to this day is denigrated and some people in the Caribbean don't want to associate with Africa. But Russell always said that, you know, we should be proud of our, that we're African. We should be proud of our skin color, regardless of whether, you know, it's light brown or like mine or it's dark black, but we should be proud. Um, proud of it and and realize that you know what we are as long as you're you're a black person regardless of you know whether you're in england or america etc you're effectively you are you are you are african and these are the, some of the things the positive things that rasta has has brought, portrayed and a lot of people have been inspired from it whether it's been through you know what through the the, the reggae music um that i'm just looking at one of the comments now and i see what someone says i used to love the song exactly mama africa lo lo lots of people uh, have been inspired through you know the music um even um um, you know, in Zimbabwe, when they were fighting to get the liberation um, to, to be freed as Zimbabweans from from colonial rule, they was inspired by the inspired by the music of Bob Marley, yeah, and that has played a pivotal role in 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 you know in terms of you know in in pe raising people's consciousness levels and and Rastafari as a whole in terms of you know getting people to be you know being proud to be black being proud of their skin colour, even like going into the lots, being proud of their hair texture. Yeah, all of these, and, and, and looking at Africa in a positive light, all of these things that had been denigrated. Um, and it's a shame because when Rasta was talking about, you know, the need for people of African heritage to be united and to be to build a nation and to be self-sufficient and, and, you know, to start looking within ourselves, yeah, these 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 people were persecuted heavily and a lot of people don't know about the persecution that Rastafari faced but right from the inception up to this day Rastafari has faced heavily heavily persecution and this is something that I mentioned in the book and this is also something that I wanted to raise the awareness of of the of the, the struggle and the foundation members like so you're talking about the persecution of Rastafari um this this is actually um uh, Thursday tomorrow, going into what the what the what the Christians would call Good Friday, but on this on this weekend in uh, 1963 in Jamaica, you had the Coral Gardens massacre, and that's a, that's an incident that happened in Montego Bay in Jamaica. And following that, in, uh, in Coral Gardens near Montego Bay, Jamaica, and the, the Prime Minister at the time, Sir Alexander Bastamante, the Prime Minister of Jamaica, um, he made all Rastas into in, into into villains, and he said, "In bring bring all Rastas in dead or alive." If the prison can't hold them, throw them in a cemetery, which means to to kill them if necessary. And Rastas were beaten up, um, 
thrown into jail into prison and 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 some some of them killed and these this is just kind of the trust ease in dominica you had something called a dreadlock where if someone had lots they could just be shot in on 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 site and even in england in in, in england in the uk in the 70s and the 60s a lot of people you know chuck their children at the house when they when they when they turn rasta in 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 jamaica you know it's common people walking on the street people run up to them and take a glass bottle and cut off their locks and even the rastas that didn't have locks is that the um, the like for example that like Howell people at Howell the the pioneer of the Russian movement Leonard Purcell Howell yeah he was um, he was ostracized the the, the 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 colonial government he was arrested by them several times and you know he they put they even sent him into a madhouse so the movement has constantly been trying to suppress suppress but anytime this is what they do anytime you have like something progressive something that is trying to galvanize and, and and promote black people anything they try to make it look bad yeah just like what they try to do with africa they try to make africa look bad and europe look good like when they try, try to do rust they try to make it look look bad to to so, so that people will see it as something negative instead of seeing it as something progressive and something that should, should, people should could, could associate with because it's really about the identity and the identity that would be missing from you know descendants of enslaved africans um and now and, and reclaiming that uh, that identity um and it was very important um and it's still relevant to this day but i think in england and i'm talking, I'm talking about because one of the chapters i talk about is the, the rasta movement in england and uh, because i know a lot of people are listening in england but particularly in the 60s and the 70s where you know prior to that a lot of their parents came over from the windjust generation and you know the brit the, the, the black brits so to speak they didn't really have a, a sense of identity because even their parents had like the caribbean identity so it really gave, gave you know a lot of them a, a pan-african uh, and other outlook another identity to look at too and it really the, the role rasta played in a lot of communities and bringing kind of like the community together even though they were heavily persecuted um it's it, it, these are some of the things that i wanted to to, to highlight in, in in my book yeah i wasn't aware of that history of, of what eventually happened in 1963 that's news that's even used to me but as i say um you know as you're talking i just remembered that we I just remember as well that there was an incident in South London with, you know, there's a, there used to be like a major Rastafarian hub in Kennington called St. Agnes Place. I think, the, I think, was it, there was a time where I think, I think British Heritage were trying to preserve it as UK landmark, but then I think the council knocked it down or something like that, and, and they kind of destroyed that building and turned it into some privacy, new, some some place in your house, but I think I think I think in the I think in the centre to to preserve it as a landmark because I think, because I think I think Bob Marley had visited it before, but I think the council just just destroyed the place. I think it was yeah, it was, it's called Saint Agnes Place in Kennington. But yeah, um, yeah, that's it. Sure, has a lot. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. for me too. But, um, I'm gonna say as well. So, hello. No, no, I was just going to add something to that, but you can come back. Okay, if you can just mute. Yeah, something else I just wanted to mention as well that I talk about in the book is I talk about the uh, the, the, the origins of the emergence of Rastafari. Um, and it talks about, you know, people I mentioned, like Leonard Purcell Howells, who is accredited as being the, the founding father of the movement, um, Archibald Dunkley, Joseph Hibbert and Robert Hines. See, a lot of people that... Um, are like are not so familiar with like the people that started the movement and this is problematic uh, outside of rastafari right? and also many rastas that grew up the rastas that don't necessarily or people that claim to be but don't know the, the founding fathers it's almost like 
not, I don't want to put in the religious context, because I don't see Rasta as a religion, but it's almost like being Muhammad and not knowing who, being a Muslim and not knowing the Prophet Muhammad is. Like, so what you find in Rastafari is people um, outside and inside that haven't really studied or don't really know the, the culture. People are just familiar with, say, a, um, a cultural aspect of it, like say they know comfort because their father or, or 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 parent or they or they see someone in lots and they want to do it, or they see someone eating a vegetarian, so they want to come into it through that way. Yeah, so they don't credit kind of grasp the fullness of the movement because they haven't really studied into the into the movement truly. And um, what I find is, and even a lot of that, say the wrestlers in the seventies and eighties, a lot of them they were limited to a lot of information that was available. So it's not always everyone's kind of thought because sometimes you only using what information is presents itself in front of you. And there's a lot more information that we know, which is why the book's important about Rastafari now because we can look at now, say, um, you know, like my book has got, for example, it's got mentions of interviews with um, Catherine Howe and and Blade Howe, the, the, the children of uh, Lennon Howe. It's got um, Africa is not such a far-fetched dream that it used to be. Like the main pillar of Rastafari, in terms, of one of the ultimate goal is re repatriation. It, Rastafari's definition is 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 a black power movement with a spiritual nucleus. And Haile Selassie, obviously, that's where the spiritual nucleus come in. But in terms of like the black liberation and repatriation, that's really the essence of Rastafari. And um, the, one of the main pillars is repatriation to Africa. That's what the whole the the, the goal is. And Africa is not such a far-fetched dream that it used to be. I mean, when, uh, say, some of the wrestlers in the past, it was like they, they they didn't have the kind of knowledge about Africa we know because some of them went to Shashamani, but a lot of them, it, it, it was a bit way out. Because, but now we've got, some of us are living in Africa. Some of us have got family with people and been in intimate relations with people on the continent. Even if we haven't been there, we know people in Africa. There's more books in Africa. There's more this. Whereas at the time, people had, were limited. They didn't have the kind of knowledge and experience that we've got here. Even some of the information that we know now about Rastafari wasn't as present, say, 30, 40 years ago. So with that knowledge, we all, it's, that's why it's important, important. We always have to move forward. We can't stay stagnative, yeah? So there's no point sometimes if someone saying that, you know what, start following someone and like an elder 30, 40 years ago, when that elder didn't probably know half the information you did and you're carrying on that kind of ignorance of that. So this is very, very important as well. And, and that's why I said the emergence of Rastafari, because a lot of people don't know about, you know, the Howellites and, 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 you know, the, 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 how the, how the, the people that were core to the inception of the movement. So what you have then is people gravitating to say the branch, but not understanding the, the root of it. And something in this book that I, I clip make I highlight more is 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 the Howellites. And in terms of who the Howellites were, and they were some of the, the first Rastas, the original Rasta. Um, and you know, Lennon Howell, who uh, established something called Pinnacle in nineteen forty one in in Jamaica, St. Catherine. And Pinnacle was the most self sufficient community in the island of Jamaica. And they housed thousands of Rastafarians. And again, something that people don't know is, is, is and, and that Catherine Howe mentions in the book is how well dressed they were. He said they didn't have lots and they were very well dressed. Some of them had three piece suit on and they were very well dressed. Well, we often see Russes in kind of a more scruffier kind of appearance. So they were very well dressed and you know, they were very skilled. They were craftsmen, they were farmers. There was all kinds of skilled people that worked on Pinnacle. And, they, and, 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 and the people also, they weren't, the people on Pinnacle weren't poor, they had money. So these are sometimes people, people associate Russes, scruffy people as poor, as this, that, and the other. Well, the, the people on Pinnacle proved that it was very, very different. They were well-dressed, they had money, and they had multiple different skills. 
And even Lena Howe used to go out on the streets of Jamaica and give money to people that were poor and suffering through poverty. But this is never the side of Rastafari that we hear about. Pinnacle was the, the most self-sufficient community in the island of Jamaica. And it's the, it's the colonial, it's the Jamaican government, the colonial government that destroyed it. Yeah. Again, and when, when you see black things progressing, it's, it's like, it was like they, were, they saw it as something opposing the status quo. And Rasta as an anti-systematic anti music movement, the, the government, they wanted to continue to suppress it. So Pinnacle was raided several times by the Jamaican government and Pinnacle, the people in Pinnacle banked their own money in Pinnacle. When they raided it, they would, they would take the money and they would arrest people under false charges of ganja. It was not everyone in Pinnacle was smoking ganja and doing them things. So um, the, the, the government initially raided Pinnacle throughout its time, but in 1955, there was a big raid. In 1958, a lot of the remaining occupants left, left the land Pinnacle. But this is, again, this is crucial information about Rastafari and, and the inception of Rastafari. But a lot of people that just put dreads on their locks on their hair, they don't know, know any of this. For me, this is definitely information. It's a history lesson as well. It was an interview. Wow. There's a lot to take in there. I definitely have to... But there's a book I have on Rastafari. It focuses more on the movement in the UK. But as far as the the roots and the foundation of it, yeah, this is all new, new, information, new information for me. Like, like, I mean, like, like, even the names you're dropping, I don't know them at all. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening as well who like that information too. But yeah, I'd definitely keep that in mind with your book. Let me just segue a little bit, though, to the other initiatives as well. Firstly, the, the Black Book webinar. Like, I, 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 came across, I came across this, this randomly on Osmond Bars on Facebook. I saw it, okay, this, this looks interesting. And I found out it's something you do monthly, and it's, 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 like, well, it's, it's not just you can offer you top page of like, Black authors across the world. Just like, like what? So what inspired that? And how's that been, that, how's that been going? Yeah. So. Okay, so yeah, the webinar is what what I've done now. Actually, is before asking the question, inspired it is is rebranded. It's under the name the Black Box Show now. When I first started, it was called the Black Box Webinar. In in uh, and I've been doing it for two years now, but I rebranded it to the Black Box Show. The reason is because I also have a radio show, and that's called the Black Box Show. So I thought, let me just keep it under one brand name. Yeah, so that's what I've done now. So it's just called the Black Box Show. But one element is a webinar, and one element is a radio show. Yeah. So the webinar or it's also like is like basically a virtual book tour. And for the people that listen in the United States, a lot of them they call it a virtual book tour. So it's a virtual book tour. Um this is concentrating on the, the Black Book Show, the webinar now. Um what inspired me to do it was there was an event that I was doing, actually linked into my first book, The Rise of Rastafari, right? Two two years ago. It's but it was during COVID. We couldn't do actually a physical event. Now I'm part. Of, I used to be part of an organisation in Luton called Luton Black Men Community Group. Yeah, um, and we held an event that was about travelling and touring to Africa, about people going to different countries like Ghana, Zambia, um, Zimbabwe, just different parts of Africa. And there was about eight people that came on, and they all talked about their journey. So I wanted to do an event to celebrate a year of releasing my book, The Rise of Rastafari, in May, uh, 2020. But um, I couldn't do a physical event, as I said, because of COVID. So it was doing it online. So basically, I kind of took the concept of that. But it said, instead of doing it about eight people speaking about, you know, um, traveling to African countries, 
I want to do it about people talking about their books because obviously, so yes, since I released my book and I know other authors, etc. So let me invite them on the platform and also they can also talk about their books. I can also tap into their network. They can also, you know, tap into mine and, 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 and that way um, make it make it a bigger event than just an event on just myself. Um, so let's have uh, more um, a, a bigger event in, uh, in the scheme of things. And the, the vision was just to be a one-off event, to be honest. It wasn't to be necessarily how it's developed into like a one-on, uh, sorry, as an event every single month and into a business. It was just to literally do just one um, one book one book webinar. Um, but uh, the reason I, 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 yeah, I wanted to do it, as I said, it was inspired because of um, uh, the anniversary of my original book. But then I kept going because... The event was very successful in terms of the turnout, in terms of what the feedback I got from the authors and the, the, the people um, viewing and the amount of re registrations. And I decided to do the event again the next month. Yeah. And it, and then it just kept growing. And then I was just decided that, yeah, they're going to do a regular thing. And then it started off as mainly authors from UK. And firstly, mainly authors that knew me for the first one. But then after that, or the first one or two, and then but then afterwards, it was other authors and the people then contacted me, and then and then also then what happened is I started having authors internationally as well, so from USA. So I've been doing it for two years now. I've had over a hundred, I've had over 150 authors come on the platform. I've had authors from UK, USA, Australia, Nigeria, Jamaica, Germany, uh, Canada. Uh, and I'm sure there's other places that I haven't even mentioned, yeah? So I've had loads of authors that come on my platform. It's an international platform now. And sometimes, you get me, I, I, I'm sometimes I'm are making bookings to me for, to be on the show. So, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's a little bit more. I'll, 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 go, I'll let you speak again before I come back. Yeah, I was going to say as well, um, so yeah, as long as you get a, a lack of some like, from all over the diaspora, so when I speak it, is there like a, do you find that they have similar, do you find that the, the authors have similar experiences and challenges than we do here in the UK or vice versa? Or are the challenges and or, or the journey is quite different also? Can you, sorry, can you just repeat the question? Are there similarities in the challenges they have to overcome as book authors? With, with, with some, for example, like, like a book author in I don't know Africa or the Africa country or the USA, do they face? So are there big journeys or their challenges or struggles similar to the challenges that book authors here go through? You find that as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I find that there's a lot of similarities in this in this in the struggle. I think so, some people look one big one is generic is marketing, and whether you're in the United States, whether you're in America, uh, whether you're in the Caribbean, a lot of people need help marketing their books. That's why my platform is ideal. It provides them an opportunity to promote their book, um, and that's something that authors generally a lot of authors do struggling because a lot of people have written a book but don't understand that writing the writing book is one part of the book journey, but marketing is another part of it. So some people, you can write the best book in the world if it's not marketed, if it's not gone out properly, if you don't have a following, if you don't have, 
you know, links with certain people that can get you on platforms, etc. influencers, your book will struggle. So um, this is why I think a lot of authors struggle with their books because they don't take into consideration marketing. They don't put a budget together for marketing or they don't really understand how much a book they need to market it. They just kind of put a, put a book out there. And I think all authors, uh, even on my last webinar was talking about, you know, things that you can do to help with marketing your books are, and, and authors in US, USA, UK, particularly if you're a self-published author. Because if your author were traditionally published, the traditional publisher would do more to put um, um, put your obviously your, your book out there. But if you're self-published, you already have to do everything yourself. And, and traditional publisher contracts are harder to get but, um, to get a come across. You could wait a whole year and not hear back from anyone or not get an offer. Um, but I don't want to go too much into that. But basically, particularly with self-published authors, um, you have to market. You have to put your book out there. And I mean, with, with my books, the Rise of Rastafari, it's three years, almost three, almost three years since I did I released the book, and I'm still plugging it. I'm still pushing it. And you know, every month I'm I'm, I'm still getting sales off of it and whatever. So you know, it, it, it's it's that. But I think it's. Um, it, it, it depends on all of you. you really have to be i think passionate about what the book you've written about as well and and have a story and a meaning behind it i think some people write books but they're a bit shy to talk about their book or and there's no point of writing a book if you can't you know if you if you can't really entice someone else about it because if you can't sell it to yourself how can you sell it to someone else so i think that's a that's a a, a big thing a big thing as well i can't well so of all the guests you've had what's the youngest what's the has have, have you had like have you ever had like a really really young person as a guest speaker on your, on your platform? yes i have i've had a young girl she was well there's two i want to use an example there's one one girl um i i, I think she she'd pre done some some working with danny at consciousness dreams publishing um, I don't think she, she hadn't had a published book published there, but I think she'd have done some kind of been on a call, some kind of work with her. But she, uh, I think, I think it's yeah, Miami Ray, yeah, and she was young. I, I correct me, I don't I know the exact age because it was when she came on the platform. It was, it was over a year ago now, maybe a year, a year, a year, six months ago. It was a long time ago. But I can't. She may be between seven or eight. Uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong with the age. But I know she was a a, a, a young child, a young girl, um, and she came on the platform. Um, also, I've had um, Winston Duncan has introduced all young authors on the platform. Um, there was a particular segment. Again, this was during my. I remember because it was my birthday special Black Books webinar. Not I'm born in birthdays October, not last October. There would be the one before that. So it was a little while ago now. And they had a book called The Popcorn House. And there, it basically there's children that was featured in that book. Um, and I think, I think it's a book, I can't remember the exact amount of children, but there was, I think, a lot of children that featured on the book. And she had some young, some young children um, that, that, came, that, that spoke as well. And again, I think the age group, maybe they were like seven, eight. Again, I can't say exactly, I'm adamant exactly what the age group was, but I know they were young children. Um, so that, that would be the answer to your question in terms of you know, young people that come on. But just to clarify as well, um, the platform is open. We don't have necessarily an age limit um, to, the, to, the, to the platform, or we don't have like, you know, you've got to be from this age to that age, um, from lowest to, to, to so as a minimum. So it's, you know, it's open to, to people of different ages. I'm also as well as about the radio show. So you do two. Just what is it? One was it? Yes, two is it? Yeah. 
um, I did. So it's what inspired the, the radio shows initially. Yeah, because you start with. I've got, to, I've got to, did you start with the radio show or did you start with the webinar? I can't remember that. Okay, so I started with the, the, the webinar. So the webinar was the first platform. Um, the radio, which has been going for almost two years now, the radio show would be at, coming up to a year in June. Um, that, so it's almost been uh, a year that I've been doing the radio, radio shows. And... Um, what, how initially I decided to, to to do it is because it was really to first it was meant to complement what I was doing with my webinars and I had that the webinars and then I would play clips from the webinars on the radio show but then so I decided to then expand so it was really like you know the webinar was the flagship show and then the radio was like a kind of uh, um, a, 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 a sideshow kind of a complimentary show yeah i'm not saying the standard was different but i'm just saying this is how it was it's like main one webinar and then also got the radio but now it's kind of developed where it's like the you know the webinar is one platform within itself and the radio show but and they're two really like strong platforms as it is on itself and sometimes people just come on radio don't necessarily come on the webinar and vice versa so the radio um and it has its own listenership listenership it is really developed i think on on galaxy i normally have an average about 200 listeners that listen so it's really coming coming along well and with the uh, radio show um, I, I then ex the reason I, I said I meant initially did it because it was to kind of complement the webinars and give the authors more exposure because they had a webinar but I also wanted them to give uh, more exposure on another platform so I was like yeah I could do one exposure as a webinar but then I could also give them exposure on the radio yeah to because it would have a different audience yeah so because uh, not not everyone people might know not everyone might not be available Sunday uh, every on that particular. I'm doing my webinars on that day and also um, the people that listen to uh, those stations and people that listen to a webinar might be you know a different audience that I can catch so I was like you know giving authors that extra exposure but then uh, over time it's kind of now gone on to, to radio to be its own show um, where it's not necessarily clips I don't necessarily play clips on the webinars it's like I do one-to-one -one interviews similar to like what I've done what you're doing with me one-to-one -one interviews and then I play sometimes an interview on a radio show um, and I also do sometimes if I have content from authors like it might be a book launch or it might be um, you know, interview that, that I've seen that I might want to just put on there or it might be a recording that I've got or someone you know a podcast that probably like the, the podcast that I'm speaking to you this will probably get put on my, put on my <laughs> something that I put, put on my radio show so if, I, if I've done like someone's invited me onto a platform to do to, do, to speak about uh, my books or my journey then I, sometimes I put that on my radio show as well so it has a mixture of content whereas a webinar format is like it's a virtual book tour the authors change but the general format is different the radio show can differ depending on show to show because sometimes what i do as well if it, i can do theme shows like um on on saturday uh, i've got a show so for those who don't know my, my, my timing on my shows is i'm on luton urban radio between um, 8 p.m and 10 p.m every other monday um, i was on monday just gone so it won't be this monday it'll be the month after every other monday and then I'm on Galaxy Radio, Galaxy FUI, which is between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. every other Saturday. And my next show is this Saturday and then every other Saturday. Um, but at this Saturday, for example, I've got an author that's going to be speaking, Desmond Clark, about stole, his book, Stolen Inheritance. 
and um, also I'm going to concentrate on the Coral Gardens massacre, which I spoke to you about earlier. And that's a, that's an example as well. If it's if it's during a time where there's like say for example um, that I can link it into maybe something in my book like events like it might be um, the Coral Gardens massacre or the coronation of Haile Selassie or 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 different kind of days, you know, Marcus Garvey's birthday or something. Just as an example, I might decide to do theme that show based on. On, on, on the relevance of that particular time, um, like, like Kwanzaa or book that's relevant to that kind of field. So I, I am also creative as well. And then I try to play music because I, I do a music that's re relative to the, the book that I've, um, I've, I've written sometimes. So with, with, with my book, The Rise of Rastafari, very, or The Life in Gambia, it's very easy to do that because there's a lot of reggae music on Rastafari and there's a lot of music about Africa. Um, but that's also something that I, that I, that I do. So if people listen to it, it's a, it's a good show, but there's also normally a, a few, one or two nice tracks that I drop on the shows as well. You're on mute. You need to unmute. Also, um, I know while you've been in Gambia, what's Gambia you do? You also do a lot of lectures as well in some local in schools and villages. How just how is that? How is that? How's that been? Like, what's the reception been like? Yeah, I mean. I wouldn't say I've done a lot. I have done lectures. I wouldn't say I've done a lot. I've been into uh, two uh, two schools. I've delivered three lect lectures in total. That was on my trip last time when I was in Gambia. The first one was the adult learning school. One of my friends, Abdullah, who's a teacher, invited me into the school um, and I delivered a lecture to them uh, about Rastafari. It was this is like maybe, you know, young young adults probably would have been like maybe 18, 19, 20, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, and then I went to his, uh, he was the assistant head teacher at the school at the time. And then he, a school that he used to teach at called Brushby Upper, Middle and Upper School, which was obviously, I think, younger students. Um, well, I think there was maybe some 14 up to 18 or something like that, between that age. And I did two different classes with them. Um, and it was, you know, they, it was, it was a pack. I think they brought most people in the school to listen, or that was around. So it was, there was a lot of, lot of um, people in the classroom. Well, it might have been the whole years, maybe not the whole school, but a couple of years or something. They brought together on both occasions, so it was packed out crowd. You can actually see those videos that I've done on YouTube on my YouTube channel. If, my name is Conan Sankofa. If you go on my YouTube channel, I've got. A, um, a highlight of one of the lectures that I did, not all of them, a highlight of one of the lectures where I talk about my book, The Rise of Rastafari. Um, and again, I was invited to talk by Abdullah, who was, um, like I mentioned before, one of my friends who used to teach at that school. And that's how I got the introduction into um, into doing the, in, 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 into going into the school and then I delivered the lecture. And yeah, talk about my book, The Rise of Rastafari, but a lot of it, um, as I said, a lot of it about Rastafari in general covers, you know, the experience, particularly of those of us who've got Jamaican Caribbean heritage in the diaspora. And there's a lot of information that I presented to the children that they didn't know, not just about Rastafari, but about, you know, the, the experience of black people in, in the diaspora. Because what, what you find in Africa and on the continent is that their knowledge of you know, what us over here in the diaspora, they don't necessarily know the plight that we've gone through or see how we're connected to Africa. So it was very important to to let them know because it's almost like, you know, what even though 
so many enslaved Africans were taken to the Gambia. And here in Gambia is, you know, everyone's seen it, heard of the TV or seen the TV series Roots. Here is the home of Kunta Kente. Yeah, this is where it was alleged that he was taken from Kunta Kente and taken to America. And they have a tourist trips where they take people to that island and this, that, and the other. But the everyday Gambian here knows nothing about slavery or very little about slavery or, you know, what it means, what happened when, um, after those the, 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 the African people that were taken from um, Africa. So when we're returning home, it's quite sad to see that we're coming back home. And particularly though for us that are coming back home, we've sacrificed. People don't understand that we, um, the, the consciousness, because a lot of people in, our, in the diaspora are still in the mindset of Africa's backwards, Africa's jungle, Africa's this, that, and the other. We are actually the ones that are coming for that conscious, conscious ones. And we're the ones that are, you know, are, are, are trying to change the narrative image and we're trying to connect with Africa. And then we're coming there and they're seeing us as white people and they're not, and they're seeing us as, you know, what, not connected to Africa or they can't see how we're connected to Africa. So it's quite, it's a bit sad in that respect. Um, but it's not, again, it's not an intentional, it's done out ignorance and people don't have education. This is why education is so important. This is why when I went to school and did the lecture, it's so important because if people don't have education, you can't, it's like, you, you're not, you're not, you're not going to understand. You're not going to, you're not going to know because if no one's taught it to them, then, it, it, they, they won't understand. So it, it's very important that, you know, the, the, the education uh, system, one thing you find is in, in a lot of Gambian schools is there's not a lot of books written by black authors like myself or other authors. Um, you, you know, you know, have a lot of books written by, you'll have books written by European. And even like I've been to hotels, other places, and you find a lot of books written by Europeans, but not necessarily by black authors. So even that, for example, that, that, uh, that needs to change. You know, first, 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 back to you, there's, there's Professor Subrin. Yeah, I was gonna let, you, I was gonna say, yeah, I, I back you on that one definitely. Like, especially the issue of black old books like black authors. Like, sadly, a lot of the history was very like when the colonialism came, a lot of um, um, just a lot of the history has been very whitewashed. You know, and I realized that as well. Like, like with me myself, I'm not doing Igbo. And one of the big incidents that impacted us was the Black War. And there are relatives of mine I know in Nigeria who they said they learned they learned more they learned more about the war or had more access to resources about the war when they came to the UK than they were in Nigeria because a lot of the books that they went through Nigeria a lot of the history they were taught was very Europeanized or British type of history. But one more question I was going to ask about the book here. Um, so, um, how have other so have a lot of like Rastafarians or old Rastafarians embrace the book? Have they, have they, have they embraced the book? Or, or, like we have, I've read challenges from like, some of the older Rastafarians or some of the about the book. But what's been the reaction from the Rastafarian community or those you've been in contact with to your book? Oh, you know, I just real I just realised I had had mute on. So, um, in answer to your question, I've had generally good feedback um, from from the Rasta community. With Rastafari, it's not something that you know, like everyone literally follows the the, the same thing. Yeah, or there's many different ideologies and different mindsets. And this is some of the part of the, I think the confusion people have because sometimes people 
see a Russell who's maybe got this perspective on things, yeah, and then or and then brandish that as every roster, yeah, or like for example, if it was like Bob Marley and people model that on every roster, or or, or just just as an example, but. Even that within itself is down to ignorance because there's so many different. I can't count the amount of it, you know, different or groups and organisations, and out, even outside of the main ones, most people are familiar with, you know, what Twelve Tribes, Naya Bingi, Boba Shanti. But there's loads more like of organisations. You can go to South Africa now, and you'll find so many. You you go to Nigeria, you can go to all other parts of Africa, and you'll find Rastas who set up organisations and whatever. Or and you might never, never, I've never, probably never heard of them. But this is what I'm trying to say. It's very, very broad, and they've called themselves this name or that. It's very, very broad. It's not just like you know what there's like a, um, a priest or Vatican and this and everyone kind of just follows that person and that person's on the, the head of, of, of everything and and this is one of the challenges I said in my book for example that I feel that the um, Rastafari has taken too much into that kind of religious mindset where it is it, more of a, an African spiritual and a pan-African movement and in terms of the, as I said that the, the 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 response I've got I've had some amazing feedback that from from Rastafari elders um and I think that would have that almost would have probably would have tried I'm really appreciative for the book that I've written um that's been obviously along their mind because it's helped to educate people on Rastafari and change the narrative of Rastafari right yeah so I would say the general response has been very very good there are ones or two that maybe have different views and different spots but even ones that maybe see it differently they've still admired the works and the commitment that I've put towards uh, it and they still see the value in many of the information maybe some maybe one or two things even if they don't agree with one or two things but they still get a general understanding of what i've seen what i've said and understand that it does it must make sense and that goes beyond rasta that goes even for christians who have read my book or other because this is not a book for just rastas this is a book for everyone to read this goes for muslim is that that people all see the value in the book and the history because there's certain things in the book that is just invaluable information and historical because it's a book based on facts and knowledge not just on a belief and so there's things such as that when I talk about the legacy of Haile Selassie, I don't talk about Haile Selassie as no supernatural being. I talk about Haile Selassie as his legacy, his achievements of what he did as a man on earth, yeah, in terms of, you know, establishing the organisation of African unity, in terms of aiding uh, Nelson Mandela in the struggle for apartheid, in terms of um, helping to modernise Ethiopia and bring it into the 20th century. So these are the kind of things, the war against Italy and Ethiopia, that is historical, these are historical things that, invaluable information so when i talk about like the persecution of rastafari right, these are very informative things that regardless transatlantic slave trade that's mentioned the emergence of rastafari right, a lot of the content in my book even in when i talk about rastafari in england about what happened the context of what happened in the 70s and the, and, and, and the 60s in this in, in this country yeah it is from a factual knowledgeable standpoint rather than from a belief system yeah so this is um so people of all backgrounds they can read the book and um yeah and and there's a lot they can take out of it oh okay well, last question before i wrap up and what do you have anything coming up any, any books in the pipeline any special points? i know so is there when's next uh, obviously of your your show coming up this saturday on galaxy Fury station do you have any any books coming up or when's next the next um book webinar or do you have any other projects coming up you know a plug anything any, anything coming up this year basically yeah yeah um obviously there's the the webinars i do every month on the radio show so the webinars are once a month Normally the last Sunday in a month. Um, 
between 4 and 7 p.m. UK time, uh, but they're international worldwide. They have a global audience who watches it. I'm always looking for more authors. So um, if you'd like to find out more details about being on the platform, just send me a message and get in touch with me. And uh, my radio shows are bi-weekly on, on Galaxy Radio every other Saturday between 6 and 8 p.m. And then every other Monday on Luton Urban Radio between 8 and 10 p.m. That's, that's UK times. And again, I'm looking for authors that want to be on the radio. So if you're author, get in touch with me. And I have three books in the pipeline that are coming, but uh, coming uh, that I'm that I'm working on. I can't. I don't want to talk too much about the books because you know it's best kept secret. But there's more to come for me. Um, and obviously, closer to the time, you'll find out um, about the books that I'm that I'm about about to write. Let's wrap up here. Thanks for coming to the show today. It's been a very educational interview. I've learned a lot more than I thought I'd learn. But yeah, it's a lot of taking them today. I've learned a lot about Rasper, a lot more than I knew, a, lot, a hell of a lot more than I knew before. And it's good to, as well that you're, you're that about Gambia as well. But just before you, you leave here, just unplug your, so people want to, people want to follow your development. Yeah, you know, how can I follow you? Just, just plug your, your website and your social media links and everything. Also, 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 um, as well, I'm saying, she's asking, as, how do you keep the webinar running consistently? Yeah, okay. So, in terms of how I keep the webinar running consistently, um, I'm just dedicated to do it. I do it as, you know, as my full time, as a full time job. I don't do it as a hobby. So, this is like webinars and everything I do is, is what I commit all my time to and my energy. So, um, I just make sure that I always have enough authors on board. So I plan the months. So I always have a certain amount of authors. And um, if I need to feel, get more authors to come in, I have certain things that I do. I don't want to give away all my strategies and my tips because then people go out and then, <laughs> you know, copy what I do. But um, there's methods that I have and, and systems that I, that I have to, to, to make it run. And there's a lot of, work behind the scenes that people don't understand that go into it. So marketing, for example, um, how um, I, I, I have strategies in place to, to make sure that I get certain numbers. And if I feel that it's going to be a bit low, then I, I, I do certain things that to entice more people to come to the event. And in terms of the authors, um, sometimes in terms of consistently, I bulk up authors or sometimes I have special guests. So I, so I have, I look for quality and quantity. So it, it's also about, you know what, finding quality authors uh, and sometimes I look at people and say that this person I feel is going to be good to come on the platform or, or that person's going to be good good to, to, to speak in that and that will also add value and consistently by, by having a different a variety and a different range of authors from different genres and it's always got something fresh so it's it's like there's authors from USA, UK, but every webinar, like my mum's always telling me, every webinar is just a little bit different. It's always got some something uh, a little bit different. So even though the format is the same, but because you're always having different authors, you're always having people telling you about their different journeys. Yeah, right. In terms of yeah, web, my social, my links obviously went Instagram. So you, um, McConnell Sankofa, you um, can send me a message. Um, I'm on Facebook, McConnell Sankofa. Um, yeah, if anyone, I mean, I'm in Gambia. If anyone wants to contact me on WhatsApp, and I'm available at plus four four seven nine four three one seven eight double one seven. That is plus four four seven nine four three one seven eight double one seven. 
Also, I do have a website called um, www.blackbookshows.com, www.blackbookshows.com. And it has a few, um, I think it's got about four of my previous webinars on there. I, I don't normally, it's not something that I normally send out in terms of to get people to, and, and, as a promotion, but I, I send people that link if they're possibly authors that may be interested in coming on the platform, but they want to find out a bit more about the show. So I just put a few four, few samples there um, to direct people to so they can just see, get an idea of what the show is like. Um, but also contact me on email at info at blackbookshows.com. That's info at blackbookshows.com. And that book, The Rise of Rastafari, Resistance, Redemption and Repatriation by myself, McConnell and Sankofa, is available in paperback and ebook. As you gathered from listening to the interview that I had with the uh, founder of the UK Black Writers Forum, the book was first released in 2019. Uh, recently, uh, I think it was about three weeks ago, I've released an, a revised copy, which is about twice the size of it, and it's an ex expanded book. It's an essential book. Uh, for read for anyone who wants to understand Rastafari and or know about the history of the movement. It covers a broad range of topics um, in the various chapters of the book. The Rise of Rastafari, the book is centered of Rastafari, but also does cover black, uh, it is a black history book that, uh, because it covers topics such as Jamaican history, African history, black British history, reggae music history, and also key figures and key events. So you will find out by reading this book how all of those are linked to the Rastafari movement. So we're well, we going to be come back with more from the Black Book Show. I'm just going to play some music now and I'll be back with you very, very shortly.
fighting in a Babylon Instead of marching to where the sea beats the sand Oh, 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 oh. Hey, mama, Africa awaits Awaits the children to move Mama, Africa awaits Awaits the children to Hey, I'm Tolu A. Akiemi, a multi-award-winning author based in Newcastle upon Tyne in the United Kingdom. I write in the genre of poetry, essays, short stories, and children's literature. And so far, I have published 14 books, and I have five forthcoming titles. And my first collection of poetry was published in 2017, titled Dead Lions Don't Roar. In 2018, I published a collection of essays titled Unravel Your Hidden Gems, and another poetry collection titled Dead Dogs Don't Bark. In 2019, Dead Cats Don't Meow, Don't Waste the Nightlife, and Never Play Games with the Devil. And in 2020, my award-winning collection of short stories, Inferno of Silence, and my award-winning poetry collection, A Book Full Love. In 2021, I published Never Marry a Writer and Black Does Not Equal Inferior, which was my response, a collection of poems as well, which was my response to all the injustice and cries from Black people around the world in relation to the injustice being meted out to Black people everywhere. I also wrote a collection of poetry that is themed on mental health titled Everybody Don't Call Mental. And also in 2021, I, I published two children's literature. I wear self-confidence like a second skin and I am not a troublemaker. And these books were written to help young people to gain self-confidence, help young children to gain self-esteem and to believe in themselves because we have to like, have these conversations with young people early for them to have self-confidence 
Then in September, last September last year as well, I I wrote another poetry collection titled Born in Lockdown, which was my chronicle of the COVID pandemic and all the, you know, all the various experiences that people faced in relation to that. And in January 2022, another collection of poems titled A God in a Human Body. And I have other books forthcoming subsequently. This year, a children's book titled If You Have to Be Anything, Be Kind, which will be out in July 2022. I also have another poetry collection that will be out in August titled City of Lost Memories, which explores themes around memories and what memory means to different means to us in, in different phases of our everyday life. And I also have a collection of essays that will be out in September titled Awaken Your Inner Lion. So that's all about my, my, my backlist and my literary catalog. I am a publisher at Rory Lion Newcastle. I'm also a co-founder at Lion and Lilac, a UK-based art organization. And we have a literary magazine where we publish works of underrepresented writers from around the world and we publish on the quarterly basis at Lion and Lilac. I'm also the founder of the Newcastle Review, a literary magazine that publishes news, literary news, interviews with authors, and we do book review at the Newcastle Review as well. For Yes, we do book reviews as well at the Newcastle Review, just to ensure that we provide platforms for authors to showcase our work and showcase our talents from around the world. Yeah, so this evening, I will just talk briefly on, on my first collection of poems, Dead Lions Don't Roll. And Dead Lions Don't Roll is a collection of inspirational poetry that was written basically to inspire people to find their own unique crew because it's when we are here that we can you know, use our gifts, use our talent, we can find expression. So that is the mantra that I live my life by as well, that because while I'm here, that is when I can write all the books I can write. That is when I can leave positive imprint on the sands of time. That is when I can build like a legacy as well. So in everything that we do, we must always like know that it's only when we are here that we can use our talents to like benefit ourselves, benefit our community and benefit people around us. So Dead Lions Don't Roll was written with the, with the aim to like inspire people to find their own unique role, to find their own unique talent. Because if we look at it holistically, everyone has like their own talent. Everyone has a talent. Everyone has something like that they can do. They can, we can all contribute something meaningful, something positive to our communities, to our environment, our families. We can inspire people to reach for the zenith in whatever they do. And, the only time we can do that is when we start, you know, start starting with what we have. And that is all about finding that inner role, finding that inner lion and having that energy to like pursue our life goals, discover our purpose and also, you know, um, put our gift and talent to use. So that's the genesis and that's the, you know, that was the mess, that's the message in Dead Lion's Story. I will read a few poems from Dead Lion Stone Road just to, 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 to round things up. 
and yeah, I'll, I'll read a couple of poems. So this poem that I'm reading from Dead Lion Stone Road is titled Heritage. Take a listen. I am from the land where we worshiped different gods before missionaries showed us the one true God. I am from the land where Saturdays are for Owen Bears and we keep up alive, even in our misery. I am from the land of dreams where visionary men took the work of glory, our youths lost after greener pastures, and our best brains take flight in mega droves. I am from the land of broken dreams, broken things, broken people, and a foul body language. I am from the lands where elders are respected and feted like an iconic symbol on, on national currency. I am from the land of abundance and want, wealth and poverty, suffering and smiling. This is my heritage, my history and story. So I'll read another poem and this is the, this is the poem, uh, the title poem, Dead Lions Don't Rule. Dead lions don't roll, as tranquil like the still waters. Their legendary status now history, a history soon to be forgotten. In the graveyard lay many unsung heroes, six feet under the ground, therein abide great potentials, depriving the world of the benefit of their ideas. We suffer not for lack of talent. Many a talent bestrode the earth like buzzing bees besieging the honeycomb. The best of men have been laid to rest, to rest with ideas confined within. The talented musician with no song to his name was buried with his gift and talent in harmony. Use your gifts while you can, as dead lions don't roll. The memories of them do fade away, do fade away with the errors. So I'll read a final one to, to round things to round things up. So this one, the last one, is just a, it tells us just the journey of, of our life. Once we're all young, now we're all growing old, and you know that's just that's a circle of life. And this is titled "Growing Old." Ah, to unwind the clock, the clock of my life moving so fast. Once I was young strong and agile, many memories to cherish, accomplished quest as a bonus. Slowly but surely, life is fizzling, my bones frail and nimble. Counting down the days, if I had a choice, I will always choose to stay, stay forever young. Thank you very much. So, and also for literary submissions, if you are looking at submitting your literary works to magazine, then you can reach out to us at Lion and Lilac as well. We always publish new works from writers from across the world every quarter. And our next issue will be out on the 1st of May, 2022. And for my details, toludo.com is my website. And I'm on Instagram at toludo.com on Twitter at Tulu Akiemi. And yeah, so that's my details where I will leave all the information for you on, 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 on the chat box. And I look forward to connecting with you. Can I have a loud roll like a lion? Roll! Thank you.
So you just heard from Tolu A. Akinyemi, the roaring lion of Newcastle. And Tolu is actually one of the sponsors of the Black Box show, along with the alongside Jimmy Asher Foundation and the Nubian Nagis Box. Uh, Tolu from the Roaring Line of Newcastle. I'm just going to recap on Tolu. Uh, his website, he did mention it, but for those who um, uh, who didn't hear or just want to take it down again, it's toluteludu.com. So that is T-O-L-U-T-O-L-U-D-O.com. I repeat that once more. That is T-O-L-U-T-O-L-U-D-O.com. Tolu toludo.com uh, he also has another website he's a publisher uh, his publishing company the roaring lion newcastle uh, that is the roaring lion newcastle.com um, where you can actually uh, see his 14 books that he has available uh, and you can also find out more information uh, about the services that he offers uh, on the website for like book submissions etc so that is uh, the roaring lion newcastle.com so Tulu A. Akinyemi is a multi-award winning author in the genre of poetry, short stories, children's literature and essays. So his works include Deadlines Don't Roar, which was released in 2017, Unravel Your Hidden Gems, uh, Dead Dogs Don't Bark, Dead Cats Don't Meow, Never Play Games with the Devil, Inferno of Silence, A Beautiful Love, Black Doesn't Equal Inferior, Never Marry a Writer, Everybody Don Comalento, I wear self-confidence like a second skin. I am not a troublemaker. Born in lockdown. God in a human body. If you have to be anything, be kind. Awaken your inner lion. You you need more than dreams. And the morning cloud is empty. So all of those books by Tolu A. Ekinyemi can be purchased from either the websites toluteludu.com or the Roaring Lion Newcastle.com. Right, we're now going to go on to, uh, what I'm going to do is play a clip from another author, who's uh, also an author, stroke publisher. Uh, she's recently uh, um, established a new publishing company called Garwell Publishing, but she's also the author of the children's series books, uh, Kathy's Big Change. Her name is Dr. Tamara Foley. Hello, everybody. Garwell Publishing, um was started in December of 2021. And that is really, uh, the name Garwell came as a, to honor my mother and father's ancestry. So the first book that we have published um, is Exploring My Emotions. And it's a 45 day journal for elementary school age children. And this journal just has a lot, I don't know if you can see a lot of color. It's not just a black and white, but it really has uh, the opportunity for kids to write down, to dream about where they are, where they want to be in the future. Um, it addresses social issues and social situations for children um, to write creatively. And so this journal can also be used in academic development counseling to assist in processing their emotions. And we know that even though people, we want this uh, COVID to be over, we know that COVID is not yet over. And so children every day have questions that they're asking. And we're still seeing children um, have a state, they're in a state of still anxiety and depression. So we were able to uh, get together with children ages seven to 10 and with their parents in order to have them 
work through the book before publishing. And so now I can say that the children have given their input, the parents have given their input prior to publishing. And you can see these interviews on cassiesbigchange.com. So parents were sharing that they didn't know their children were having all these emotions and all of these things going on about school. But now, since they've gone through the journal, since they are processing the journal, that they are uh, seeing and hearing more from their ch children. So this month we have uh, as a part of our spring promotion and I am in, I forgot I was supposed to say this first, I'm in Illinois, um, I'm in the Midwest, I'm in the Chicago area. So we're, we are, uh, we have a spring promotion going on. And so we have some additional products and we have Cassie's Bear and this is a part of the Cassie's Big Change series. And we also have a pen. So this is a part of a box. So you would get the book, the uh, journal, plus the bear. Then we, we uh, are introducing our Cassie's t-shirt. And this is something that's being introduced as a part of helping kids with their creativity and helping children to um, really deal with their stress. We've kind of put together a little stress kit. So we have uh, Play-Doh or depending on your child's age, you could have slime, a stress ball or a widget or, uh, and it includes uh, some smiley face erasers for uh, toppers for uh, pencils. And so we really wanted to do something that was going to help kids, whether they're on spring break, whether they're in between uh, classes or whether they just need an outlet. So we wanted to make sure that we had those available. And so what do we know about journaling? Well, we know that with journaling, it helps kids to think, it helps them to write, and it helps them to use their imagination. And they also, with this journal, can share how they think they could make the world better um, while reflecting on their friends, their families, and their dreams. So we wanted them to write and have an opportunity to write. They have an opportunity to talk about themselves every day using an emoji and say, I'm feeling this way today, I'm not feeling this way, but also who are my supports? Who are the adults that I can go to? It also uh, generally also helps children to be more empathetic and to connect. So when we read uh, books, they can see themselves in this character character and be more empathetic. Um, and we also wanted them to see just how are the likes and differences that they're seeing in their own lives. There are several different themes that they can connect with. And we're hoping that through this, this can help children to ease some of that anxiety and to help be a support and a part of the healing process. So I am so happy to introduce exploring my emotions and the spring box and uh, exploring my emotions journal is available uh, to everyone on Amazon. And it does have seven different themes um, in the journal. Uh, it gives children an opportunity to talk about themselves. So if there's a back to school, there is a, um, the world around us, a reflections, 
family projects, changes and experiences. So just different things for them to be able to um, connect with. Also there, I'm trying to let you see, there's a lot of different color and uh, puzzles, activities, coloring um, that they can connect with just so that they can doodle, just whatever, just to be able to express their emotions and a place for them to use their creativity, imagination, and of course, writing skills. Is it, is it just children's book Garber Publishing publishes for, or is it is that just children's books, or is it other authors of different genres as well? Oh no, we would welcome any uh, author of any genre. Of course, our specialty is children's books, but we welcome uh, anyone. We're not limited to just children's books. And you're you're looking for more authors to publish with you at this current. I definitely am, absolutely, to help them in their journey. Maybe you're, you're already there and you just need to help along the way. Perhaps you don't want to necessarily write your book, but you have uh, the idea. So we do offer uh, ghostwriting services. And now you, my final question is, obviously, is you've made the transition of obviously Cassie's Big Change of Series to becoming a publisher as well as an author. What particularly made you want to make that move and step into publishing? Well, that was really something just uh, I was exploring and just looking at uh, just something else. And I wasn't really looking to, to do it. I was just looking into the possibilities. And once I started uh, learning and um, took a 10 week course step-by-step step, and I said, I'm just gonna try it and see. And I think from, for me, when I started uh, self-publishing, after I wrote the book, I didn't know what else to do. So. I needed help and I had to really look and find people that I could go to and one person or one place that I could go to, to help me finish it. Because that's that wasn't my background. I'm a veteran educator. I spent uh, almost 40 years in urban education. So I, I, wasn't, I didn't know I have any background in publishing or marketing or sales. And so I needed some help. And I think that many of us need help along the way because it's a lot of work so we're here for those like me who needed that extra uh, help in the process and if you're interested in cassie's book exploring my journals uh, if you're interested in the exploring my emotions journal or the cassie's big change series they can be uh, purchased on amazon or on the website cassiesbigchange.com and that is cassiesbigchange.com. If you're interested in publishing services from Garwell Publishing, if you go on the website, garwellpublishing.com, um, you can submit uh, all your information there and they will get back to you. That's garwellpublishing.com. Right, we're now gonna go on to our final speaker this evening. And our sp final speaker is Terence Wallen. Terence Wallen, the author of The 36 Days of the Truth. He's also the... Um, author of the book Now I'm Famous and his recent book is a 90-day journal. Yeah, my, my first book was Now I'm Famous. My second um, book was called 365 Days of Truth, which is really a um, it's a book which is it's set throughout the year, throughout 365 days, and it came about simply as a means of therapy for me. So I used to get up and just 
write, read quotes a lot and write down things of how my day went. My brother died in 2017. So when Ted died, um, I was in a very dark place and I somewhat lost myself. So writing that book was um, one of the things that helped me through that process. So it became, as well as being in counseling, something that helped me as a therapeutic process. So simply reading and simply writing. So what I, I needed was simply daily affirmation because I realized that when you're in a dark place, like every single, like every day is a brand new day. Um, so I, I was simply having to sort of deal with every day as it came. So I had some days are great and some days are really rubbish. So what I did was every day, I literally had to speak to myself or read myself some positive affirmations. And I, I, I put them on my, um, on my WhatsApp statuses. And then I was getting like over 150 um, views every day and comments just on my statuses. And my statuses could vary from everything from I'm having a great day or it could be simply today's one of the worst days of the week. But I was always being honest and I just wanted to be as human as possible, be as authentic as possible, be as vulnerable as possible, and also to share, share my vulnerability. And that was to um, ensure that men or women out there who have gone through similar traumas, be it death or, or anything, that they're, they're vocal enough to share that with others, knowing that I wasn't alone. So when I was share that today was a rubbish day, other people say, yeah, I'm having a rubbish day as well. So just that process of constantly sharing, constantly sharing, um, helped me to put together 365 days. So the book is it's dated. So you start from the 1st of January, you end on the 31st. So you can buy it at any point and start at any point. So every morning you get up, you read, you read a quote, and then um, I sort of put my, my take on that quote or, or personal take for myself. And what is real is that Everything I say is also relatable because nothing is new under the sun. So whatever I'm feeling now, someone else is feeling now or someone else felt before. And I, I just wanted predominantly young black men to understand that it was okay to be like, you don't have to be the same as everybody else. Okay to be different. It's okay to feel different. It's okay to like, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be in touch with your emotions. Um, these things are natural things. And I think because we've, as men, we sort of wrapped up in the hyper-masculinity, we kind of bottle so much of our emotions in that we, um, we, we struggled later on in life because of that. So I'm a sensitive guy anyway. Um, so there's a few things that would trigger me in general. So like speaking of my brother's dead triggers me all the time. Speaking about my sister, uh, my sister, Seneca. My, um, for those who didn't know, my mom died like three months ago. So we buried my mom last month. And one of the things that triggered me was that every time I speak of my sister, my sister Sonia, it triggers me. Like it's about to trigger me now, but it, it triggers me. So for that reason, just being able to be myself and it's therapeutic. So if, if I cry, it helps me through that process rather than wanting to relieve, wanting to get my stresses out or any anxieties. So rather than bottle them in, because it, it becomes weighty when you bottle stuff in. So rather than bottle it in, I let it out. Some men might think I'm just weak. Me, I think it's strength um, because it's strength to be myself rather than, I think it's weak if I continue to try and be something that I'm not. So through my, through my life struggles and the last four years as an, as an example, reading, writing has put me in a better place. Um, and also I generally believe that um, us as young black men, we have to be part of the history that the future is gonna read about because I'm, 
like Mr. Ramis and other people, we are accessible. We're here today. So though we read great books, um, and Mackinan, um, like though we read great books and of you know Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King, um, Marcus Garvey, um, though we read great books of those great men, and we all do, they're not accessible. Only their only their their stories are. Whereas now in this day and age, we are current and we have the, you know we're we're in the digital age, so we're accessible. I'm on your email away. I'm on your Instagram away. Same with everyone else that I know. So it's it's about being part of the history that the future read about. So in the future, young people, not necessarily my kids or my grandkids, um, but young people in general or people in general will be able to Google us or find us and say, oh, this guy did this work. This guy done great things. And no matter how small it is, you know, it can make a change. So if I can just change any one man's perception on removing the hype masculinity and just being human, no matter how it looks, then my job, then my job is done. So I'm, you know, I was, I'm kind of on my journey. My journey is very much about finding that balance and get, getting it right and being able to just, just be myself. So my, back in the day, my ultimate goals were very much around finances and all the other bits that we have, that, you know, but now, you know, my ultimate goal is just purely happy. You know, it's purely happy. Like I just simply want to be happy. And I'm fortunate to have a, a good team of individuals, very tight circle, a good team of individuals that allow me to be who I am. So I don't feel like I have to be someone else in front of them. And it was similar to an audience like this and me going forward. I don't feel like I need to be no one else but myself and reading and writing and publishing my second book. It's really helped me. Um, and just to add here, um, my publishing company, DMJ Publishing, is black owned as well. So it's, you know, supporting our own and keeping it going and so my third book um I'm not, my third book which comes out on the 20th of december um which was meant to be like my fourth book but i couldn't finish my third book so i jumped straight to the fourth which has now become my third did the maths so my third book is called it's uh, it's the it's the truth it's called a truth planner so it is a normal standard basic planner visions are not solely around um you know the car the house all those things it's more about getting the balance right in life to be able to enjoy those things. So back in the day, my vision board simply had the big car, had the big house, had the you know the money, you know the job, and all that, and the you know the pretty woman. So then my vision board, would, but now my vision board would have a smiley face. Now my vision board would have had my my mother on it smiling because my vision, my visions, and my aims and my goals would have changed as I got older and realized what was really really important, and also realized that. When you are, when you are, when you're building, you're growing. If you don't have the balance right, you don't get to enjoy the things that you work so hard to get. So, and to implement in the planner, it allows me to implement other things into my day. So rather than just working for the bag, as it is said, I also work to be healthy. I, you know, instead of doing twelve hours, or not 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 so many, because about working smart and hard. Instead of doing eight hours, I could now do six hours and go to church for one hour, or do six hours and meditate for an hour, or just read for an hour. So all the things that are gonna create a balance rather than just simply working for all the things that, you know, probably social media pushes us to work towards all these other little things that are, are important, but not as important. Because if you don't have good health, you don't have a good mind frame, none of the things you work hard to achieve will you ever, ever really enjoy. Like I feel like I enjoy my successes, not because they're attainable, but I feel like because I have the right people around me all the time to keep me balanced. 
and all these soft cushions around me. So if I ever do fall, so they're around to help me soft land or help me pick up my pieces. So um, the third book, which is called The Truth Planet, out on the 25th of December, you can get it everywhere. Amazon, DMJ Publishing, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, um, oh, Google Play. Those, as well as my second book, 365 Days, you can, you can grab them. So for me, my whole journey now is very much about truth, finding myself. And sometimes it takes some real crazy things to happen in one's life for one just to see this bright, bright, bright light and this great vision. So I'm, for, I'm fortunate for me, it was the last time my brother said, and more recently losing my mom, that has constantly given me these new awakenings of how my life, you know, should, how my life needs to be, how I need to see my life, how I need to be with my family, how I need to be around my kids, how I need to, I've only got one grandson, so how I need to be around my grandson and, and sort of show them a different avenue life. So obviously you want them to be successful and attain, and attain great things, but more importantly, you have to be balanced within your own life and find richness within your soul rather than richness in the bank, find greatness within yourself rather than buying that great house, find, you know, find love of, of our brothers and sisters and ourselves rather than finding love in fashionable items. So just getting that balance right. And that's really what it is about my, my whole three books. So all there is three books, first book, um, Now I'm Famous, second book, 365 Days of the Truth, and my third book, which comes out on the 20th of December, which is called The Truth Planner. You can't miss it. It's beautiful. It's get it anyway. Get it. And if you want signed copies, get me. Listen, guys, thanks for having me. I'm staying tuned in to everybody else. Um... Right, that was Terence Wallen. Uh, just to recap, Terence Wallen, he is the author of the book, The 90 Day Truth Planner. Also, 365 Days of the Truth and Terence Wallen, Now I'm Famous, his autobiography. All of those books are available on Amazon. Just type Terence Wallen on Amazon and you can be able to uh, allocate or find out where those books can be purchased. They are in available um, in paperback and Kindle. And the 90 Day Truth Planner, I believe, I'm not sure if that's in Kindle as well. I know it's in paperback, but I know the other books are both in paperback and Kindle. Right, we're coming to a conclusion to the end of the Black Book Show now. Thank all the Galaxy listeners uh, for listening to the show. It's been another great show. I hope you've all enjoyed it. Uh, our next presenter coming up is SG Vibes. So remember to tune in again, the Black Book Show, every other Saturday here on Galaxy Afiwi Station, the only de-brainwashing station between 8pm and 10pm UK time. I'm McConnell Sankofa signing off saying thank you for all the listeners and I'm now going to hand you over in a few minutes to SG Vibes. Malcolm X, black Marcus Giavi, black Barack Obama, black Bill Clinton, black How you think about that? How a leap of great Some of the greatest people in African history Document that 